Recorded live from a place where spring lasts more than three days, avocados stay perfectly ripe for a week, and lima beans actually taste good, this is Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her as well. Our guest today is Natanya Barron. Natanya is a host of Thread Talk, a regular Twitter column where she explores the history of some of the world's most popular fabrics, including an unvarnished look at how cultural appropriation has altered and even destroyed significant and historic weaving skills. Natanya is also a fantasy author, fashion nerd, medievalist, and King Arthur scholar, and we'll find out which of her fantasy worlds we'd actually find tasty lima beans. No, we're not going to talk about lima beans. Good, they're horrible. We're going to start our non-bean-related conversation with Natanya right after the traditional music swell and fade out. little dirt pods. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loony, and a few British tenors from when I was in London because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one. The coins. Money. About how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses, and by going to TransformationThursday.com, they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh, God, I hope so. Okay, then. TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure. I can get that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling and my pronouns are she, her. Our guest today is an amazing and fascinating woman I first encountered on Twitter because I like dresses. Natanya Barron is the author of dozens of short stories, a fistful of novellas, and a few novels. On the internets, Natanya is a notorious meme generator, as well as the host of Thread Talk, which is where we're going to start today's conversation. But I also want to mention that on top of all of this, she's also an artist and a mental health activist, especially regarding adolescent care. But before we get into any of that, I also want to clarify something for myself. You're a King Arthur scholar. Are we talking about the actual king or are we talking about the flower that's in my pantry? Talking about the, the king, the prepared, purported king. <laughs> okay, so you have no idea why my buns aren't fluffy. All right, just one. I know. Sure. I mean, that could be another problem altogether. But... <laughs> have you seen her buds? <laughs> <laughs> not, not enough people have seen my buns. Anyhow. <laughs> So, Natanya, so I, you've 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 done all these wonderful things. Uh, I first 
literally because I saw one of the dresses because somebody retweeted your one of your thread talks. I'm like, oh my god! And I'm reading through all this, and I'm like, I gotta, I've gotta follow this woman. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so, and, and there, what you do, your thread talks are like these really fascinating, well-researched deep dives into the history of a whole bunch of different fashion styles and 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 um materials and fabrics mm -hmm. that you take a pretty unvarnished look at this now, now is this where you you're but you're you you make more money probably writing novels than you do talking <laughs> about clothes but which started first because i know your 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 novels are oftentimes are historically based mm -hmm. uh did you get into the stories because of the fabrics or did you get into the fabrics because of the stories? You know, I, I've always loved fashion. It's always been something very easy for me to understand and access and sort of find beautiful. And, and that goes back really, really far. I, you know, I, I talk quite a lot about being ADHD, but I'm also a formerly gifted kid. So when I was in third grade, we had our first independent pro project and we could pick anything. And I decided to do a retrospective of fashion of the 10s, 20s, 30s, and 40s, because even in third grade, I just found it so fascinating how shapes changed and fabrics changed and fashion changed and what people considered feminine or masculine. And, and that was such a really interesting time in, especially in the United States and in Western culture for, for really pushing, um, you know, pushing the envelope in terms of those designs. And, you know, when it comes to fiction, you know, they're just we talk a lot about what's called world building as writers. And that's that's how you figure out how to talk about the culture the world, everything that makes the people who, who you have people. But I really have held for a long time that fabric culture is one of the best ways into understanding people. Because we, we tend to kind of think more in terms of like politics and war and food, because those are also very accessible things. But what really separates human beings from everything else on the planet is that we make our own clothes. We're, we don't have fur. <laughs> we have, I mean, some of us have a little more than others, but generally speaking, we, in order to brave different climates, we have to adapt and wear clothing. And that's been going on for, for, you know, thousands of years. And it's just incredible to me how, you know, you learn about everything from who was allowed to wear what to who makes the fabrics to you know how that changes over time and how you know i talk a lot about colonialism because so much of what we consider western design is actually completely taken from other cultures so i can't write a single book without thinking about that and earlier this year i just said you know i'm already doing this research I'm kind of snarky and have a sense of humor. And I would love to try to make this more accessible to people because I think fashion in general can be very inaccessible. People feel like it's either trite or, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I could make it accessible to other people to see that because I've been on panels and I will say that there are certain cis white men in general who would kind of poo poo the fact that I would say, I think culture is, you know, fabric culture is the way to look at it because they want to talk about armies and, and, and armor and, and, and bashing people in the skulls. And I love that. I'm a medievalist. I think that's fascinating. But, uh, but I think a, in, in some ways it really does uh, give you a whole lot more uh, view into that. You, you mentioned in there the colonialization of, um, and I read your thread this week about Paisley. Fascinating, like the, the history of that, that just totally changed my look on it. And I had no <laughs> idea about the origins of it. I mean, 
how do you dig back and find this stuff? I mean, this building that history and that world is just an intriguing process to me. It is, and I think you know, I'm I'm a natural born uh, researcher. I I my background was in academia before I decided that I didn't like college students, and I really didn't want to spend the rest of my life hanging around them. Um, well, you but picked I'm the always, wrong place to live. Yeah, for that. yeah, I know, right? Full time yeah. grad student here yeah. too. <laughs> I mean, I love graduate school. I loved doing the work and the research, but I found that it came from a different place than a lot of other people did. And I really am a very interdisciplinary person. Like my background, even as a medievalist, thankfully I could kind of take a lot of interdisciplinary courses. But when it comes to doing my research, you know, I, I really try, I, I mean, it's, it's dorky, but Wikipedia is a great place to start because it often has a lot of great uh, external links, footnotes that you can find other stuff in. Um, and then I kind of use my Google foo. It's a matter of just finding what I go through a lot and I can tell pretty quickly if it's not really a good source. Um, the really good sources will have even more sources for links. And I've gone all the way to find like random dissertations <laughs> that are incredible that are published online. There's a couple about uh, the history of Chinese silk in particular. I also try to find indigenous voices. So people who are writing from those cultures, it's very hard. There is a lot of, it's a very large share of voice for white Western uh, authors who have sort of taken the story and, and kind of, you see the BBC Muslim piece was very much like that. They had a piece actually on Paisley as well. It was a very similar tone, which is this sort of like, oh, isn't this so cute? Um, this is such this neat thing that happened or this beautiful, beautiful fabric and not really thinking about the people that it came from. Um, and then I do some etymo etymological research. I try to find, you know, an enough people that agree to one degree or another. Paisley was fascinating because it really, it's called so many things in so many different cultures and it has different meanings. And it's so old that we don't really even know what it means. Um, but I try to piece it together and find some kind of overall narrative. Usually there's some story because the, the, the drawback is that this is Twitter. And I'm not writing dissertations every week, thank God. But I tend to get real, like, I love the super nerdy, like, you know, what the dyes are made out of and, and what the, you know, how the word came to be and what the language is. But I realize people want to see the dresses. So I always save the dresses for last <laughs> and hope that by the time we get to the dresses, you have enough information and you can kind of see it in a different light because that's, you know, one of, one of the things that I really challenge people about that beauty is hard work and beauty doesn't just exist in and of itself. Generally speaking, there's there's always going to be more back there. Um, sometimes I'm really surprised. I you know, muslin was one of those that went absolutely viral, and I just I thought people knew this. <laughs> I yeah. thought, well, really, I mean, and, and that's great that they don't because then I can help. <laughs> my my only experience with paisley is really from the '90s. I mean, it made right. a great frat boy tie. I mean, you yeah. know. <laughs> And that's really where it came, but, but truly like, and to, you know, I love Regency period in particular. And, and I, one of the cool things is that you kind of think of this sort of plain white, you know, Regency gown, but it was almost always coupled with one of these, you know, uh, these, these Paisley scarves, these uh, from cashmere. And, you know, that was such a huge cultural appropriation. <laughs> You're talking about something that was literally taken back from soldiers to their wives from the royal class of the time from the Mughal empire. So yeah, I mean, it's just, just that alone is such a story in and of itself, you know? Yeah, and there's so many interesting and, and 
quite frankly, tragic stories that that are going on yeah. there. You know, you talk about you know Paisley being Paisley that it, and 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 fashion being a language. It, it's also very fungible, and as so, there were things that were done to like that that are historically tragic in order to. Mm -hmm. To, to change who made the money off this. And yes. Muslim was the perfect one about that uh, because you, as, as you'll say it better than I do, but they, there were actual like traditions and, and looms that were destroyed. Mm -hmm. They were destroyed there. I mean, they're really, you know, I, it's, it's such a hard thing. I am an avowed Anglophile. I mean, I grew up obsessed with everything British and I, I just thought it was the coolest thing from BBC dramas, Jane Austen, Doctor Who. I mean, it just always seemed so amazing. And the longer that, and of course I studied King Arthur, you can't get much more British than that. But the longer that I've studied, the more that I've really seen that there is this just very, it, it, it's, it's amazing PR, right? Because, and I, and I have many British friends, I adore them. They're fantastic people. This is not to say it as a whole, but especially the monarchy, the British, the British power really gave, license to really pull out some of the worst atrocities that the humankind has ever known and what happened in what among the bengali people and around bangladesh around once the english figured out how to make muslin was you know a systematic uh destruction of culture um it was it was done on purpose it was done with lots of strategy and thought uh, there were a series of uh, famines that only really were as bad as they were because of the way that the British uh, had really changed the whole culture and agriculture of these people so that when they no longer could make fabric, they didn't have the fields of food that they would have had before because they were trading everything for fabric. But once the, the English figured out how to make muslin, they were going to make sure that nobody was going to make it again. And you know, you hear stories of thumbs being cut off and people being, you know, uh, killed and fabric designs dying with people because there were only a handful of people who know how to make them. And um, yeah, it is, it is, it is horrific. The the millions of people that died uh, in when the British uh, Empire kind of just stopped finding them useful. Essentially, um, is 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 really it does just kind of stop you in your tracks. I've had a few people go, oh, the British were awful to everyone. And it's like, yeah, they were awful to a lot of people. As a French Canadian person, I totally understand that. <laughs> but um, they were especially, especially horrible. And there's even quotes from Churchill, you know, wonderful William, uh, Winston Churchill, who refers to the people of India and the Indian subcontinent as, as vermin. I mean, literally using the worst possible language that you could. And this is someone that we still to this day hold up as this paragon of virtue and courage and you know not even a generation and a half ago um, and of course today today there's still just tons of, of racism and, and misunderstanding and one of the most meaningful things for me has been hearing from people who were like I have DACA muslin that was passed down from six generations and I have it in a box that I, I wore part of this for my wedding I mean you know you read about stuff and you talk about stuff as an outsider I'm just trying to hopefully make people think twice but to hear from people or to hear people say i didn't even know this was part of my culture that's how far this this got from us yeah so in your writing when you're writing about these periods how much of this uh informs what you're writing 
Or is it, you know, like, you know, like, you know, he slowly took off from Muslim dress and you're thinking that fucking motherfucker yeah. of East India. What's his name? The guy from yeah. East India Company? Uh, Robert Clive. Yeah. Robert Absolute Clive. Trash garbage human. Yeah. Yeah. Are you thinking that or is that like, or does it, I mean, I, I, full disclosure, your books are on their way. I have yet to read any of your books. Um, and I'm real excited because I bought three of them. Um, <laughs> And I'm very excited to read them because it's it's this is my my jam the way right. like, a lot of the stuff that you write is the stuff that I really like to read so um, you know I'm, I'm real excited about this but how do you how do you how does it inform your writing is there ever a, a point where it's like I have to change what I'm writing about here because what I learned about it there well, I think in some I think in some instances I do what I've been doing recently is more alternative history. So it's, I can I have a little bit more freedom. Um, the Regency romance, the, the queer Regency romance that I'm actually working on getting in submission, which is very exciting. The what romance? It's a, it's a Regency queer romance. So it's really, it's, yeah, it's basically, it's basically pride and prejudice with witches and a lesbian couple. So, um, you know, Mr. Darcy wasn't that hard to turn into a, a brooding lesbian who wears dapper clothing. Um, so, but, I decided that because in this particular world, since witches were okay, and I decided that was a long time ago, that witches were actually going to be a big part of the culture, that a lot of other things were okay too. And that uh, there's quite a lot of families that married into the nobility who were from the, uh, from the uh, company Raj or people that were merchants at the time, um, as well as freed slaves and sort of creating a little bit more of a diverse you know, group of people, but also that, that being queer being trans, all these things were not really an issue. And I, and I, I think I spent a lot of time wondering if I was going to take it and make it be, you know, was it going to be a big thing? Yes, there are naysayers. They always are. But I liked the Schitt's Creek approach where just homophobia is not really a big deal. They got bigger problems to worry about. And you can still write a story in that realm and still have a lot of commentary about it. But part of it and part of what I looked for, you know, I never saw love romance innocent stories as a kid growing up um i just didn't know that was a thing i didn't even know that bisexuals existed until i got to college i thought you had to be one or the other <laughs> you know, so um that was kind of my goal there but that's kind of how you know i do want to make sure that the world itself holds firm and so my trouble is not going too deep in the weeds in terms of clothing but I want to make sure that I'm doing my my due diligence. I think it's really, you know, if you talk about damask fabric, you need to know what it looks like. A lot of us use these terms. We don't really know what they are. For me, it's important that I have an understanding of where that could have could have come from. Um, but whenever possible, I do like to rag on them, you know. <laughs> and I went and, and I and I'm sitting here and I'm going, okay, so you you just mentioned colonization. You mentioned our dimorphic view of especially sexuality and gender. Yeah. Um, and I just have fallen in love with the word dimorphic. So, you know, I'll one. probably, yeah, I'll probably spit that out a few more times tonight. Uh, but then also, we also tie in fashion. Mm -hmm. These things come together. They really do. And, you know, and you look back at, you know, just lack of better term, the two-spirited tradition and native mm -hmm. tribes on the North American continent, reaching down the Central American and the South America, that was squashed by yes. Spanish and English imperialists, you know, around 1500. Mm -hmm. So this stuff has had, you know, 
you know, some of the transphobes today, oh, this stuff is all brand new. No, we just haven't known about it for about 500 years. No. So and how that, does that, how do, how do you want, I mean, you're bringing in story threads that haven't been talked about in, in a lot of centuries. Yeah. And, well, I mean, the, the, the narrative, especially the narrative of, of performance of clothing. I talk a lot about gender clothing because we have a very narrow view of what that is. And it has changed dramatically, like so dramatically to the point that, you know, how powerful that can be. And, and I would love to do a series of thread talks on the queer narrative with fashion, because not only nowadays do we associate queer folk with fashion because there's sort of been that hand in hand, but throughout history, uh, you had many people passing as other genders, sometimes full time and not knowing until they passed away. And there was an actual you know, autopsy done and they're just shocked because as many of us know how much of gender is performance. It's not even, it's not how we're put together. It's how we learn to present ourselves. And there's a lot of power in that. Um, some, you know, George Sand is a fantastic character to look at who, you know, when she was, when she was uh, writing, she got dispensation from the French government to wear men's clothing. And she thought female women, women's clothing was ridiculous, ridiculous and constrictive. However, when she knew she needed to present a certain way and she needed to be in a certain situation, she would sem it up <laughs> and she would, she would be on display because she understood the power of that. And people would not see her in the same way um, that they would see her if she was, of course she was, you know, high, high flouting, uh, you know, well-to-do family from a, a, a long line of nobility. So she had a bit more privilege, but we know how powerful that is and how, you know, how horrific it was when women started wearing pants and riding bicycles because doctors were convinced that, you know, our uteruses were going to fall out. And that was like a, an actual thing that they were concerned about. Um, and that wearing pants would make women, you know, hysterical or, um, you know, be able to do all kinds of things. But if you look back further, women in men's clothing were not that different for a long time. We dressed boys as in dresses until they started to go through puberty in some, in some cultures. We've lots of, I did a whole thread a couple months ago of portrait paintings of young boys in huge 18th century gowns <laughs> and we know that was a, as, as ornate and baroque as you could possibly imagine and no one batted an eye as well as just the incredible elaborate uh, embroidery in men's clothing and I think that that's kind of the thing that really sucks about last century and this century is that we we decided that men had to present in this very narrow boring uh, thing and anything else would be feminine and and you know weak <laughs> and yeah. frivolous when you know i really believe that clothing is an extension of expression and for me i've always felt that way i i i just do so it, it is a very freeing thing to be able to talk about and it has so many layers um there is a fantastic uh blog and i'm, I'm i think it's called dressingdykes.com i believe and she's also a TikToker. And she does specifically the history of lesbian clothing. Um, and she includes others too, but this is primarily her focus and her research. Super, super cool stuff. Um, so highly recommended there. Is there a big flannel section? <laughs> right, Birkenstocks, <laughs> flannels. <laughs> Gotta get the boots Just, in there too. Yeah, yeah. My partner keeps threatening to buy me some flannel because I don't own any. So I, I don't make a very good lesbian, I've been mm. told by. <laughs> I have an embarrassing amount of flannel, um, very, very high colors. 
I don't. I made the very conscious decision to get rid of all of that stuff. Mm. Um, basically because that was all I ever wore when I was, uh, when I was living as a man mm -hmm. is I, I had like, you know, four pairs of flannel shirts, one not flannel shirt and like t-shirts. And that was, and, and that was it. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I had like two pairs of jeans, one pair of not jeans, you know, like a pair of work boots. I was like, I had zero, my, I, I, I deliberately, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, the clothing and the clothing choices that we made and how the reflection, I was deliberately yeah. reflecting a person who did not give a shit about clothing. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the revelations that happened to me uh, was just as I started transitioning and I was going through a bunch of different phases. I, I didn't say I was transgender when I began my transition. I said I was um, androgynous and then I was mm -hmm. bigender and agender. And, but I was like moving towards my authentic self and I was trying to tell some friends who I was and, and, and things about me and, and not always well. And I was having coffee with a friend of mine. We had coffee together every Sunday morning at eight o'clock. And I was trying to explain to, to him what I was, and I was doing so much lying to myself anyhow, that it really wasn't very authentic. And, and while we were talking, this woman walked into the coffee shop. I was facing here. The, the doorway was directly behind me and this woman walked in and he looked over my shoulder and he looked at her and he says, okay, so when I look at her, I, I think I want to have sex with her. Is that what you think? Now, leaving aside the fact this was a 64-year-old man and the, 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 the woman who walked in was probably in her early 20s. Uh, and, and, and that thought was like, but I turned around, I looked at her and I said, yes. And then I stopped for a minute and I said, no. And then I said, when I looked at her, I thought, that empire waisted dress that she's wearing is doing a really good job of making her look both elegant and young because it's short and it shows off her legs really well. And, and the way she has her hair piled onto her head uh, it contributes to that sense of elegance, but those tendrils of hair she has wafting down around her shoulders gives her a sense of youthful vitality as well as contributes to an overall sense of length that she's going for. As to the chandelier earrings and the gold in the chandelier earrings <laughs> picks up really all the gold in her high heel shoes and the gold trim on that dress, but that particular shade of brown in her dress is not doing her any favors because it's making her skin look a little bit sallow. And my friend said, okay. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't really know that I was thinking that. Right. But I apparently and you would not have, you know, I, you couldn't have told that by me. But I it was it was like really weird for me all of a sudden to actually listen to the voice inside my head that all this time that I spent that I really was an ogling woman. I was just taking notes. Yeah, taking notes. And then I and I, and I had an actual sense of fashion that I really and, and I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And it took a while for me to actually be able to embrace that because we were because our society does want to categorize and put people in boxes and that and and make you believe that this is the only box and this mm -hmm. is the only thing that you can do and this is the only type of clothes that you can wear because you are you know who your genitalia say you are right and and the sad thing is i was actually thinking about this earlier today while i was in the garden as you do um but i was thinking about how it's even hard for cis women because there still are all these rails and there still are all these rules and you can't be too much because then it's uncomfortable. It's like the, the, 
the, I grew up pretty poor. And so we couldn't afford the name brand clothes, mm. but I found thrift stores. I still shop at thrift stores. This is from a thrift store. I love thrift stores. And I, I've always loved offbeat fashion, but I was always really aware of the fashion trends and I wanted to incorporate those in too. But even so people would, I mean, I just grew up thankfully with a mom who, I mean, she walks into a room and everyone looks at her and she probably spent $6 on her whole outfit, but has I that love your kind mom. of, I, she's amazing. And she just has that ability to do that. And I kind of adopted that, but I also wanted to know where everything comes from. And, but the sad thing is that even me growing up, I still wasn't dressing like the cool girls. Um, I, I thought it was just in high school. I went to college and it was like a J crew catalog come to life, you know? <laughs> and I, not only did I not like that stuff, I couldn't afford it. I, I often tell the story of the first time I went to an Ann Taylor, my roommate, who was pretty much as like, you know, she wore solid shirts and jeans that were of the right design and style and cost and approach all the time. That's all. She never made a decision about her clothes. She just wore what was in the store. Um, but we went to Ann Taylor and she was looking for an interview suit. And I, I didn't know clothes could be that expensive. I honestly had no idea that a tailored suit was going to cost you $500. And for me at that time, $500. And she's just like, hmm, I don't know if I like this one or that one. And I'm like, I literally can't afford a hairpin in this store. You know, <laughs> there's nothing here that I can, that I can afford. And I remember we later went to the gap and I found a dress for $14 and I wore the living daylights out of that dress. I wore it till I, I couldn't wear it anymore. <laughs> and I mean, that just, there are just so many rules and unwritten rules. And I just always decided that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to break those rules. Those are also the dresses that I'm, you know, when I'm doing my fashion research, it's the, the ones that really are different that I love the most, like give whatever white muslin gowns from the Regency are fine, but give me something that's like canary yellow or that's deep green or that has incredible embroidery. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see the things that look like everybody else. Okay, so let me ask you this. If you had your, if like, if you could drop into your own speculative fiction or historical fiction, what would you wear? What, what, was there, is there a, a, an era there or a style is, of clothes yeah. or a fabric that you would be your favorite? <laughs> you know, the, uh, the 1870s and 18, the 1870s to the 1890s to me are is just about the most perfect time because you see so much in terms of that sort of architectural construction of clothing that I love and really working things like pleating and, and different fabrics and more accessible to more people because that was a big thing about the late Victorian is that once you were able to industrialize clothing, you could actually have some pretty nice things even if you didn't have a ton of money. My dog is whining again, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's not me crying. Um, but by the time you get, especially to the 1880s, uh, you also have this change where you start seeing things that about a hundred years previous were only worn by men and they start being incorporated in this, the lapel designs and the jackets and the shoes and the hats, sort of riding gear um, that women start to wear. And it really changes the whole silhouette. You know, it just gives a certain, you know, there's a certain power in that almost and kind of re redefining the masculine silhouette. And I just love that as well as the colors you start getting. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. some of them are poison, like we talked about a couple of <laughs> times, but you, you also get chemical dyes for the first time. And so you start to get these vivid magentas and deep greens and uh, really black blacks and then iridescence. You use things like taffeta where you can actually weave two different colors of silk 
And then when it hits the light, you actually get this, you know, this incredible refraction of color, um, as well as just, you know, kind of throwing out the book in terms of symmetry. I love how asymmetrical things get, especially toward the turn of the century in the 1890s. You just get some of these incredible, incredible designers like Paquin and like, um, like House of Worth, who are just really uh, changing, changing our perception of what, you know, evening gowns are and what haute couture is. Um, and everything, of course, is still made to, to each individual person, but you also could order stuff. And I love catalogs. <laughs> I get super nerdy about finding old, uh, like Sears catalogs and old uh, Harper's catalogs. And you can, you can just see the level of detail. You could have 70 different kinds of shoes that all were kind of similar, but you know, you could, you could pick your own one and have it and have it delivered to you locally. So yeah, that, that, you know, hands down in terms of comfort, probably the 1820s, the 1820s to me are sort of that pinnacle of like right before you get ridiculous <laughs> with the mid, mid 1800s, I just can't stand, but the 1820s and thirties, you get some gorgeous silhouettes that actually look comfortable to wear. I love in you know, Pride and Prejudice you know, remakes, they always have Lizzie running because she actually could, she could run because stays were actually quite comfortable compared to sort of later engineered corsets, which were, you know, only a really short time where they that horrible. And it's even questionable how horrible they really were, but um, some of them for sure. But generally speaking, if you had a well-fitting corset and a well-fitting set of stays, you weren't going to be in that much more, certainly no more than we have to deal with these days. <laughs> I think some of that fashion from the late 1800s carried into the 1900s too. And mm -hmm. I think that really sprung into the 1920s. Yes. Where we saw a lot of designs and women's haircuts starting to come up, newer fashions, mm -hmm. shorter dresses. So I think that that has played onto each other. How does that parlay into modern times? Well, it's interesting. I think we have, you know, the 20th century had so much change so fast. And you had two huge wars that meant scarcity. And whenever there's scarcity, fabric changes. You had in the 30s, women, they started printing, uh, you know, flower bags with prints so that women could repurpose them into dresses. You had the rebirth of things like calico, you know, cotton that was easy to make and easy to, you know, kind of take apart and sew back together. But you also had like, I talk about this a lot, sort of this, this the hinge point of World War II, you had so much happening you had women for the first time in a long time really being able to show that they could do all the jobs that men could do while they were in the front but you also had men having relationships with other men in the front and and kind of a very interesting uh shift in that as well and i think the 50s as beautiful as much of the clothing is it it really harkens back more to the rigid structures that you saw in the 1800s um, versus the very comfortable, free-flowing, even the 40s, which is a very kind of almost androgynous styles. Men's suits and women's suits were very, very similar in construction and design. And then you come into the 50s and all of a sudden it's like men wear these kinds of suits, women wear these kinds of dresses, wives wear these kinds of clothes. Um, and wives are expected to be in this cocktail dress while you're also making dinner for your husband and vacuuming the floor. And that really was, I think, a conscious cultural decision to say, hey, we had this, these years of war where things were not the way we want them to be. And I think, you know, to get completely political about it, that's the great America that people want to go back to because it also resonated and also meant that people of color uh, and queer folk were also in different boxes and kept apart 
we didn't talk about these things, um, which of course then brought into the, the, the 60s, which was again, almost like the 20s. You have kind of these really fast oscillations. And in the 60s, you have very similar cut clothing to, for women where you kind of have a box shape, right? Instead of the really tiny waist that you had in the 50s. And then God knows what happened in the 70s. I wasn't quite there yet, but uh, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and I can't, I, I don't even know. I don't even know. I can't even tell you. There were just some very questionable decisions. At, 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 I, but I and, think I, that, and I wore every one of those questionable yeah. decisions. You should see, no, no, actually nobody should ever see my high school prom picture. Um, it was, it was hideous. Uh, it, it was just, it was like the, the ugliest shit ever. Um, yeah, polyester. I have, probably should do a, a, a whole thread on how much I hate polyester um, because I did. I actually I wore a lot of my dad's old clothing because my dad kept a lot of things from the seventies, and I loved the patterns. And I would wear his old suits. I would wear them to school. I wore men's pants to school because I thought that they were comfortable. Um, but were they sons belt? <laughs> they were real bell bottoms. I wore my dad's real, honest to goodness bell bottoms. Um, which are apparently coming back again now, which is oh my fascinating. God. They just, we can't decide on a thing. I think that's been the last 20 years or so has been, it's like back and forth again, right? Yeah. Like recently it's more florals, but man, like seven or eight years ago, it was all back to like Chevron and ECAT patterns. And, you know, we, we tend to recycle really fast, but, um, you know, I, I think we're, I think we do kind of don't know what to do because, because fast fashion, of course, is just as bad as fast food one of the main reasons that I still shop at thrift stores because I hate the impact that clothing makes. Uh, and it really hasn't changed, right? We get upset about sweatshops, but sweatshops and clothing making has been there since day one, right? Like people learned how to make beautiful things and rich people wanted to use it and then didn't pay them enough for the beauty of the things they were created. And that's just, it goes back so far. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I kind of, don't even know what the current because I look at my daughter now and she's wearing what I was wearing in the 90s <laughs> that's like and when in the 90s I was wearing what people wore in the 70s like it, it really haven't figured out much in the way of newness because I think we have sort of a classic look right t-shirts and jeans are kind of the the thing and it's like suits with shoulder pads or no shoulder pads I do yeah. love a three-piece suit but they're hard to find um but yeah it's 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 a weird it's a weird time for fashion, but I do, I still love fashion shows. Um, what was next in fashion that was, that was on TV the, the, on Netflix, which I love. I love watching people make new things. Um, I love prints. I love, I love all that stuff. I just wish it was more inclusive. It's getting there, but it's still, I mean, I was never shaped the way I, of course, talk about growing up in the nineties when heroin chic was a thing you know, opening up 17 magazine and seeing Kate Moss and being like, I probably weighed that much when I was in third grade. Yeah. <laughs> um, which no shade, no tea. But the problem is that when that's what everyone wants, no wonder there was such a huge rise in, you know, eating disorders and all that kind of stuff. There's a dark side to all of this. That's, you know, it, you don't have to dig very deep. And I think that, that that's the, the problem is that a lot of people don't, don't dig, or if they do, they don't want to think about it. Um, yeah, you mentioned in their boxes a little bit ago, and you're all we're all kind of dancing around and talking about these different boxes, you know, eating mm -hmm. disorders, clothing, gender, you know, the 1950s, you know, we've just seen this explosion of gender, mm -hmm. you know, babies are gendered beef and actually they're 
genitalia is identified before they're right. even born these days. And so how how is fashion being used to try and trap people into their roles? But then also, what are you seeing out there today where people are, I think, really using fashion to break out of those boxes as well? They really are. Uh, I think it was particularly bad in the 80s and 90s, got to the point where it was like girls' clothes and boys' clothes really just exploded. The 70s was really interesting because you had kind of this idea of gender neutral clothing, right? Where, where boys and girls could pretty much wear the same thing. And it got so bad that like, even my, my daughter is almost nine. I remember trying to find jeans for her and they were all cut so tight and narrow. And it was like, she's, she's seven. She just needs something comfortable. And everything is just, you know, girl this, girl that, pink, blue, which of course is another complete construct. So, you know, I think, I think it was an early way. I mean, that's about, you know, societal, societal trapping. Like you said, it starts so early. Girls and boys, kids, children start asking these questions very young. And we've always tried, and like I said, I live in an area where that this is okay. It's not, it's, it's very much talked about. We have some kids in our neighborhood who are flirting with the idea of transitioning. They don't, they don't feel that they identify with their gender. And so their parents are, you know, completely open to that. My, my daughter, you know, she says she feels more like a she, they, and I said, yes, you can be, there are lots of variations of gender identity. And there's some days that you can feel, and I, I think that makes sense for me too. I would never want to be a guy that like, that, that like, don't no, I'm not a him. Please, please, please. No, that's just preaching my reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Preaching I, to the choir yeah, sister. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like you could co- totally understand. They is totally fine with me, but you start calling me a he and a, um, Thank you. I'd like to get off this bus. Um, (laughs) But, but, um, you know, I think having open conversations, I have seen a lot of clothing companies for kids uh, come about with, uh, with gender neutral clothing, because fucking children, babies, and like, you don't need lace and taffeta on a little baby girl to prove to the world that this is the, you know, whatever. as well as, you know, I, I'm very, I, my daughter sees stuff in the boys department that she wants. I have, that's like the least of things I can do to her. I also loved shopping for guys clothes. Like when I was, didn't have a female presenting body, it was, it was a lot easier. Um, and in some ways I, my husband's t-shirts are far more comfortable than some of my t-shirts ever are because they're actually cut to be more inclusive. Um, I think I worry about, you know, I, I struggled very much with body image as I love my mom, but she, that, you know, fatness is something that's terrifying in their family. This idea that like, you know, every, everyone, like the, the whole idea of like laziness and fatness and all these things. And it's like, some people are also just genetically predisposed to be larger bodies and we need to be, and I, I wanted to make sure I told my husband very early on, I said, I never want my children to hear me talking badly about my body because I heard it growing up all the time. And my mother looked like Penelope Cruz. I was bigger than her by the time I was 11 or 12. And she was there calling herself fat and pointing out all these parts of her body that were not good. And she's she's gotten, she learned her way through it. But a lot of that was just the culture she was brought up in. And your body and your beauty are your only real, you know, value. And Thankfully, I wasn't brought up like that necessarily, but I still saw the damage that it did. It's taken me a long time to accept the body that I'm in. 
And uh, now that I'm raising a girl who's starting to go through puberty, you know, I want her to understand that, you know, her body is beautiful the way that it is. And it's just, I mean, I, I, even saying beautiful is like too much. This idea of body neutrality, I think is so important. We want to, we don't want to elevate bodies to the point where it's ridiculous because not every body is going to be traditionally beautiful, but every body is worthy and everybody can wear what anyone wants. And that's, that's the, the sad part about, you know, so much fashion is it's so clearly designed for a very specific subset of people who can a, afford it and B fit into it. <laughs> Cause there's there, I'm not going to fit into a sing, single sample size that's out there, but different bodies have always existed. And that's actually something that's really interesting. There is the survivorship bias. One of the reasons we have so many tiny clothes and tiny shoes is not because people were tinier and they had smaller feet. It's that those are the things that were worn less because they were not repurposed and dresses were made and remade over and over and over again. And it's much easier to make a larger dress into a smaller dress or repurpose that than a tiny, tiny dress. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's a deviation, I, but it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, I never, I never even considered that until you started talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really the, the, we, people wore shoes through generations and they wore dresses through generations. There's some dresses they have that you, they can see that they, they remade it into a different fashion five or six times. And one of the things that they love about finding, especially stuff from like the, the early 18th century, they'll say, you know, in, in the, in the museum, this has never been altered. They know that this is the original design. And that's really wow. rare because a lot of these brocaded fabrics, they were incredibly expensive. So of course, what is left is the last person wearing it because you have to have a certain environment and not have worn it many times for it to survive. I mean, dresses became fabric for for, for furniture. They became tapestries. <laughs> they became book binding and lampshades. You know, we we don't understand that because in our day, like fabric is everywhere. So, yeah. and also everything is nothing is designed to last. Mm -mm. There's yeah. no, there's never. If you keep something before it goes out of fashion, you maybe it'll come back in fashion again in you know three or four years because that's how fast right. nostalgia is getting anymore. Try to find a cobbler, right? Like, I mean, but that used to be, yeah, such a huge business. Like someone who could be a cobbler or a tailor because you know you were often having things made and remade. Um, and polyester, of course, like we were just saying, is not something that does well with that polyester deteriorates terribly as a thrift store person i can yeah. i remember i loved polyester when i was in high school because i would love i loved the 70s sort of style but you wash it a couple of times and even 20 years later it would start to fall apart because it's just Absolutely. not it was not built to to last so so yeah i mean it's it's um it's really interesting how it really does touch all corners and i think you know how we decide to present ourselves and how we decide what kind of clothing we wear and what we notice is it, 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 there's no end of interest to me to see how, you know, people talk, they talk crap about the royal family and talking about their clothing, but it is important. There are so many messages in what they're wearing um, and what they're choosing to wear that say things that you can't really say in public. Uh, it's, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we got there. Um, <laughs> so I have a I have a 19 year old and a 12 year old daughter, 
And what and we you know and I always shop for new clothes growing up. Like you say, let's go to Goodwill, let's go to the thrift mm -hmm. store. No, I would never want to do that as a kid. But if I were to say that to my kid, like, hey, let's run down to a thrift store, you know, I'll give you twenty bucks. You know, that's a great day, and that's probably like one of the best ways I can spend with my kids. Mm -hmm. With how did thrifting become so cool with this generation? I don't know. I, I think part of it is the environmental impact because I do notice that kids have a much clearer idea and clearer understanding of climate change, right? And how much fabric culture has to do with that because in terms of water cleanliness, in terms of energy, deforestation, um, you know, using our precious resources, it's a big deal. I remember I had a friend in college who was trying to raise awareness about sweatshops and people were just like, shut up, just stop. Nobody wants to hear this. But, um, but I think that there is, you know, there's something also really fun. There's also a huge community who, who remake clothes. So I, I, I love TikTok and I follow people. I can't sew to save my life. It's a great irony of my existence, but I love watching what they can do by redying things, recutting things, taking the seams out, um, you know, repurposing. I think it's such a great part of the recycling world and good fabric lasts forever and I shop mostly by patterns I can tell um, by what the pattern looks like pretty much at a glance if it's a good you know piece of, of cloth or not and that can often find some just super super cool um, super cool things and plus a lot of cotton is better once it's been washed for a while you know it's got that nice like this, this, this is like my favorite t-shirt that's been washed a bazillion times and it's just it's so comfy <laughs> what's the oldest piece of clothing that you have Oh, I don't have a whole lot that's old. Unfortunately, um, mid-sized ladies don't have a whole lot to choose from, but I, I've had a few things from the 50s and 60s that I had. I do love a good A-line dress. Um, no crinolines for me, thank you. But yeah, a good a good A-line dress pretty much works on everyone. I had a pretty big steampunk phase, so I had quite a few corsets mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, but nothing, I, I would love to start collecting some things. I have more old jewelry from my family. I do have an old uh, baptism dress that is from my great grandmother. So she wore it in, I think, 1898, probably the oldest thing we have in the house. And the lace on the cuffs is that kind of lace where you're like, I can't even see the stitches. Wow. <laughs> but some, somebody clearly made this by hand. Um, so yeah, I love, I love that kind of stuff and I love finding that. But again, it's hard to find things that I can actually wear. Um, but that's okay. I can I can always appreciate it, and you know. You know I love the fact that we're moving away. We've we've talked about this about the boxes and about thrifting and things like that. I love the fact that there are so that, and more than at any other time, I think in history, at least modern history, where fashion, where, where you know, where we have the 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 time and money to mm -hmm. actually be fashionable as a as a culture, as opposed to just the upper crust we have the ability to make for ourselves our own look. Mm -hmm. I think that I think that part of that goes into the the thrifting because you get to experiment much more you if do. if you know if if I have $20 and I can can come out with seven dresses from a thrift store uh I'm 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 going to be a little bit more risky with what mm -hmm. I'm going to be buying there to figure out what I want and then there's that joy of finding things and mixing things from different styles, different fabrics, different textures, different looks to put together for a look for yourself that that you you can get now that and and there mm -hmm. are influencers that do that um and and the, but but there are also people like you and me that 
will work at these things until we find what we like and create yeah, and it changes. Thing. I I have my aesthetics change from year to year, and I look back and like, oh wow, I wear that. That's awful. But I also believe in like foundational garments, and I think that spending some good money on some things that are well made by you know real people who are making them. Um, can really build your wardrobe, you know, back in the before times I traveled a lot for work and that's one of those places like it's okay to go get a good suit, you know, like get it, get it fitted to you. That's what people did for it's so weird because that's what people did for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And it's really only the last 30 or 40 years of this idea that you can buy from a rack. And of course, which I'm sure you both experienced as well, women's clothing has no rhyme or reason. It's just made to drive you completely insane. There is no there, pockets. No, I have everything from extra smalls to extra larges in my house. And there is no reason why it should, that range should exist. And they all fit me in different ways. And yeah, no pockets. Um, I just bought some orange overalls on Amazon because I just really wanted to. <laughs> I'm going to wear my Birkenstocks and my flannel. Um, but sometimes like you can build things around it and just like be more comfortable. And one of the things I love about the, especially the younger folks coming up is this embracing of different body shapes. And, you know, you don't have to be X, Y, and Z to, to, to wear what you feel comfortable in. And it's so liberating because it's like, you know, it just, it is more comfortable. It's uh, my dad used to make fun of me all the time and he just didn't really get it. But he's like, you know, you just for a while, you wore really baggy t-shirts. And it's like, I went through puberty at 11. Like, I don't want people looking at me. I had a very grown up body and it was terrifying. People reacted into ways that I did not. And I actually, I also had breast reduction surgery. I had, you know, uh, major issues in that department, especially after I had my son. And I was in severe pain and I had to go through and have, you know, <laughs> have 12 pounds of me removed. And, uh, wow. and that was such a, you know, fitting into clothes for the first time in my life after that was about 10 years ago, since I, I had, you know, G boobs by the time I was 13. So mm. having a straight size, you know, bra measurement, I could all of a sudden wear things that I'd never even contemplated wearing before. Um, but again, we don't have, we don't have a world where you can have custom clothes. And I remember getting fitted for my wedding gown and I had to have like a bustier kind of style. And the woman was so frustrated with my breast size. She was like, we don't have them this big. And I was like, what exactly do you want me to do? Because I'm getting married in four months and I'm pretty sure these aren't going anywhere and I need to wear a wedding gown. And I, I just remember being like, why? Like, this is your job to figure this out, like to help me out. They ended up buying a dress that was four sizes too big to cut it down to actually fit me. And it looked beautiful. It was, it was a Galadriel style, uh, oh, wow. you know, wedding gown with, with lacy sleeves. It's very pretty. It's still in my closet. But yeah. that shame, I mean, and the shame comes from, unfortunately, other women as well. Like, you're so lucky. I'm like, no, I'm not. I had a really weird thing yeah. happen to me yesterday. I I have, you know, I, I, I think I got like 60 or 12 pounds right here. I had had uh, breast augmentation surgery last year. Um, and um, yesterday I went out for a bike ride and I was feeling, you know, I, I, I don't know if you saw, I, I'd taken a picture of myself. One of my favorite jerseys doesn't fit me anymore. It, it, it doesn't zip. And so it was like out. And I was like, should I wear this? And I decided not to, but I didn't zip it all the way up and as i was riding it went down and down and down and down <laughs> and i was riding down this i was i was about 20 miles into my bike ride and i was riding on a, on a surface road 
it not not too far from here and this guy like just crossed in the middle of in, in front of me so it was I, that i had to like hit my 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 bell and swerve and his his head was down like this and he looked up and his eyes never got higher than this and like i'm i'm going like 15 miles an hour down Monroe Avenue, swerving, trying to angle myself between him and traffic. And like, I'm just like, like, get out of my way. And he looks up there and he, I know it was reflexive, but he went, hi there. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> what I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to, what do you want me to do? Stop and say, hey there, big fella. You know, it's like, I didn't know what he was. Like, he didn't do anything. I, I think it was just like a, just completely, a completely reflexive guy thing. He saw my tits and just decided to talk to them. Yep. Yep. And that was something I dealt with for so long. And when it was no longer my defining characteristic, it was so weird. I mean, talk about body dysmorphia. All of a sudden, all the other parts of my body seemed totally out of proportion. <laughs> it was like, you know, it, it really, it really, uh, yeah, it's, it is, it is very, I had to throw out so many clothes. I, I had to go buy a whole new wardrobe because nothing fit the way that it had before. Um, but our bodies also do change with time. And we, we have this, you know, ridiculous notion that we're supposed to stay the way we do in our twenties or that, you know, if only I could look like I did when I was 18, I'm like, but you're bot, you're a different person. You're fundamentally a different person, regardless of your, your journey all of us go through hormonal changes and environmental changes, and we just don't give ourselves a lot of grace in that. And that's kind of a, a, a sadness to me that people can just live so long and, and not be able to yeah. do that. Yeah, but the best question when you leave a thrift store and you find that one piece and you're wearing it and somebody says, where, do you, where did you get yes. that? I want to go find it. You're like, sorry, it was a sorry, thrift store find. Yeah, I had that happen with a dress that I, I wore for Easter that I found at a thrift store. And I found out later that it was like $120 dress. Um, but I just loved it. And it was so comfortable. And it was perfect for Easter and uh, matched my hair. So, you know, another rule that I like to break. Um, <laughs> because like, I hate the idea that you're not supposed to wear certain colors or whatever. But yeah, you can, and you tell, I'm sorry, it's from a thrift store. I paid $4.99 for it. I want to tell a real quick story, uh, my, my favorite, my new favorite, Natanya Barron story. I don't know how many I actually have, but I'm going to share this. I, I shared this with you. I'm going to share it with our with our audience. The other day, I was wearing one of my favorite dresses, uh, which is uh, like I call it my constellation dress. It's It's got like it's blue and it's got like stars and comets on it. And I was at I was at the grocery store. And the woman who was ringing me up said, that's a beautiful dress. What, what's what's the material there? And I said, well, it's it's muslin, but it's not really muslin. And she goes, I know I was just reading a thread on Twitter about this. And I said, Natanya Barron. And she goes, yes. And oh, I was like, oh, my yeah. God. And she was, oh, my God. And she's like, do you follow her? I said, no, I should. And I was like, okay, well, you, you should. You know, do you know how many followers she has? And she said, 36, 37. I was like, no, many, many more than that. And she says, no, 36, 37, that's what you owe me. Um, no, that last part is a joke. Uh, but no, we re it was we, it was really cool, like, finding somebody just offhand that was also, like, a thread, uh, a, a thread talk person just yeah. like me. I mean, it's, it's just, it, it's one of those weird things. I've been on Twitter since 2007, you know, and you try to build your audience and you try to do it. And, you know, 
it took the pandemic for me to like, just take the wheels off. And I think, you know, I had my ADHD diagnosis during the same time. And I finally just said, you know, this is something I do. And maybe people out there are going to find it interesting. And, you know, I guess they have, and it's, it is still mind boggling to me that every time I sit down to do a thread talk, I'm like, oh, they're going to hate it this week. It's just not going to, not going to do something. And sure enough, like it was the, the Muslim one was actually emotionally difficult for me to get through. I can imagine. I had, it had a really hard weekend just kind of thinking like human beings are just the worst and this beautiful, beautiful thing, like possibly like almost mythological style, you know, beauty was just, it's just such a horrible story, but I am so grateful for all the people that I've connected with because it's just like, you know, you can't, I'm a marketer by life, you know, how I make my career in the daytime and you try to follow the rules, you try to do best practices, but sometimes it's just who you are. Like you just happen to hit the right time. Um, I had that with my memes too. Like I just happened to hit a, a, a chord with people that find my sense of humor appealing <laughs> and my love of possums and other strange animals and my very opinionated thoughts about, yeah, about, about octopuses and squids and tentacles and what are not tentacles. Um, But I guess it works. I mean, you just, you hope. Um, I kind of ascribe to the, what was the sort of early on, I followed Will Wheaton on, on all the things when I was first coming up and he would always say the first lesson is just don't be a dick. And you'd think that that would be an easy thing to do, but it's clearly not because every week you hear about people and I know I'm going to fuck up. I know I'm going to probably do some, I had someone upset at me for, for some of my threads because they felt that it was not my place to talk about these things culturally. And I can totally understand that. Um, but I also can't not talk about it. I can't, I can't write Regency works and historical fashion in my books personally, ethically for me without telling people about where it came from. That's just so you know, you're not going to, you're not going to please everybody. And I, and I try as much as I can, like I said, to have voices of the people who made these things. And it's always refreshing to come across some things that just don't have that level of horrible, like lace was kind of a nice surprise because it's European um, for the most part. Yeah. There's terrible stories about labor and, and all the kinds of terrible things that women had to do, but, it, but it was also not about stealing something. Um, and a few others like the, like embroidery, almost every culture in the world has embroidery. The problem is of course, that people are like, I like that embroidery, I'm gonna steal it. And that's a different story. But, um, but no matter where you go, I mean, that's just one of those things. You make something really beautiful and rich people are gonna want it. And it's not really different now. Now it's about brands, right? It's not really the clothes. We can make something look like anything, but to have an authentic pair of little batons or to have, you know, a very, very high-end uh, Gucci purse is going to set you back more than most people really can. And that's the other thing about our, it's not that different. Like capitalism to me is the natural extension of colonialism and the monarchy. It's just different people that control the money and and have, you know, the view into those people. I, I, I've been talking, you know, I have a great group of D&D friends and we have all kinds of philosophical conversations and I, you know, and we come from a, a vast difference of backgrounds. I have a career of over 15 years, you know, I'm well positioned in my company. Some of them are working, you know, in retail still or in food service. And I said, the thing is, the truly rich look at us and we're no different. The gulf between food service and a person in a marketing career for 15 years is nothing <laughs> compared to me 
and the billionaires that are out there, the amount of money and what they can access um, is, is, is so beyond. And in so many cases, it is generational, right? It's very rare to find someone that truly comes from nothing. And that's been the story of power and clothing and money for a long time. But no, you don't have to have that great, you know, dynasty to understand where you come from, where you're going and to have that appreciation. But I also like that you understand that there are ethical issues with these things and they need to be talked about. That's a big difference between appropriation and discussing something very honestly. So it's been a great connection this hour, Natanya. Well, it's been a pleasure. (laughs) I love talking about this stuff, clearly. (laughs) Yeah. No, and I know we could go out for hours and hours and hours and, you know, but I got to go lay down again. (laughs) I feel you. I've been in the garden all day and I have a feeling that my muscles are just going to, I'm going to be complaining a lot tomorrow, but it was worth it. It was. It happens. It's it's been a lot of fun having this conversation. I hope that we, uh, hope we get to have again, maybe when you get, when your next novel comes out, we'll have you on. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. I of course have a, have a tailor because I always do. I always, I always have to write someone into the story that, that loves fabric and one of the heroines loves to embroider. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to find your, your joy somewhere. So looking forward to it. Tanya Baron, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us. Uh, Amy and I are going to come back with a quick wrap up. Thank you very much. And we'll be right back. This is Transformation Thursday. To financially support Transformation Thursday, go to TransformationThursday.com and that will bring you to our Patreon page. Once there, click on the Become a Patron button. You can also follow us online on Facebook. You can follow us by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. And please join our private Facebook group by searching Transformation Thursday on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at TransThursPod. To make sure you stay up to date with all the latest episodes, please subscribe to the Transformation Thursday Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts on apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a short review it's free and it does help get transformation thursday out to a larger audience finally transformation thursday is copyrighted material all rights reserved 2020 welcome back to transformation thursday this is penny sterling and my pronouns are she her and i'm amy stevens and my pronouns are she her as well did you have as was, was that was like the best class I've ever taken to the, or the best it's like a combination of a, of, of, of a class and sitting at a bar with somebody really, really fascinating. Natanya Barron was all over the place, all over the world, all over the, 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 the history of fashion. And I just loved every minute of it. Yeah, I was, uh, what struck me about this interview is I was kind of worried about it when you brought it up to me because I was looking at these threads going, this is really high level fashion academia kind of stuff. And I'm like, and and I know how high powered of a thinker you are. So I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to stay up with this. And so, but what really, what I take away from this is like fashion politics and gender and the way we view these things are all so intertwined with each other. And I, and I really appreciate how Natanya is really trying to deconstruct some of this and provide that viewpoint to people. As I said, that thread on Paisley was just an amazing, like I said, my viewpoint on Paisley was really, you know, really pretty ties in the 1990s. You know, yeah. that, you know, yeah. but to get that background was, yeah, for me, it was, to have. 
Yeah, for me, the, my my paisley background were the uh, the dresses of the nineteen sixties that I knew that I was never going to be able to wear. The the mini dresses with the fluted sleeves were all in paisley and the low cut. I could I could I can just see them right now. But 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 the the but the length of the the length of history that can be told in a a pattern or or, or a piece of fabric and the tragedy that's there. Uh, I, I think it's 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 one of those things where you when when we talk about the good old days they weren't all that good. There was a whole bunch of of really bad shit that happened, and I, I'm really glad that she's able to to bring that to us so that we're I, that at least I'm going to be a little more conscious about the the choices that I make fashion wise and the things that I do. It's just really really a, a fun and interesting thing because I you and I both love dresses, Amy. Yep, and when we talk about the good old days, at least with that MAGA crowd, you know, we're talking about those boxes in the 1950s that we're trying to be stuffed back into. So and we're trying I like to break, that. Yeah, we're tr- there's a whole generation of kids and people like us trying to break through that. Well, we're going to be doing and we'll be talking more about that coming over. This was kind of a fun diversion. I'm glad to have you back. I just want to acknowledge that the UK, this is your first one back from the surgery. Uh, and it's really great to have you here as well. It's been good seeing you. You look healthy. Um, and um, it's I just a, I'm, I'm so glad that you're, you're you're back. That's all. Makeup does wonders for the looks. It does, but you you, you look fabulous. I hope you hope, and I'm glad that you're recovering. Uh, we'll have more really fascinating conversations in the future on Transformation Thursday. But for right now, I'm got nothing left to say. But I don't know if you ever heard, but every single one of my shows, I said good night to you. So I'm going to continue doing that. Good night, Amy. Good night, Patty.